Welcome to the SaaS Sales Performance Podcast, the show for anyone wanting to be on the cutting edge of SaaS tech sales. We provide the tools you need to take advantage of the rapidly changing sales environment. We bring you the leading experts on the front lines of SaaS sales and distill down our famous masterclasses into bite-sized practical tips. Your hosts will be Ash Ali and Matt Milligan. And on this podcast, we'll be helping you transform your ability to sell more so you can smash your targets. Welcome back to another episode of the SaaS Sales Performance Podcast. We're recording this episode for those listening in the future in early March of 2023. I think it's fair to say relatively uncertain economic times. And one of the topics of today's conversation is going to be focusing around enablement in a recession. And I'm thrilled to be joined by today's guest, who is really helping shape this narrative and helping us figure out enablement's place during a recession. Today's guest is a former sales leader and experienced enablement leader. Today's guest also specializes in storytelling and looking forward to kind of diving into some of those themes in today's conversation. Today's guest is none other than Ben Elijah. Ben, delighted to have you on the show and welcome. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. Before we jump into thinking about enablement, where we're headed in 2023 in these uncertain economic times, I'd love to just jump a little bit into kind of your background and really your journey through sales, sales leadership, and also how you got into enablement. Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, well, look, I've been doing enterprise selling since I was 17, very much by accident. My teenage self sort of fell a little bit off the rails and, well, quite frankly, sales saved my life. I'm blessed to have fallen into this profession. And yeah, so probably spent the first 10, 12 years or thereabouts working my way up in enterprise selling. So started out in the aerospace industry, then spent some time selling information security services to the British government. And then an eight-year stint at Apple in B2B, which is where I then made the move into enablement. And that was about 12 years ago now. And at the time, enablement was very much this idea of taking, if it's not too big headed to say so, you know, well-performing sellers and scaling their best practice to train and, well, enable other people. And at the time, quite frankly, it was easy. Expertise was difficult to find, you know, finding top-performing sellers and people with knowledge of Sandler and Miller-Hyman and Challenger and all of that good stuff. Difficult to find that expertise back then, but very easy to find talent, very easy to find people that were capable of leveraging it. I actually think now though that has sort of switched around. It's very difficult now to find people with the IQ and the EQ necessary to succeed well in sales. Very, very difficult. But I've got expertise coming out of my ass. I can go to YouTube and find world-class tuition free of charge. One reason I actually think the enablement profession in its current form is going to die. I spent time in various tech companies, SaaS companies, starting up enablement operations, being part of existing enablement operations, consulting. And yeah, I've seen quite a few highs and quite a few lows. I can only imagine and looking forward to diving deeper into some of those in today's conversation, Ben. Yeah. I love the way that you kind of described the origins of enablement there, because for many of our listeners of the show who are sales leaders themselves from both sides of the Atlantic, but also enablers who perhaps have only been in the profession maybe less than five or 10 years. I think it's really helpful for our listeners to understand the origin story of enablement that you shared there. In its simplest form, it sounds like it's scaling out best practice across a team and using that understanding of your highest performers to do so. 
Does that still stand true today, Ben? I mean, if you think about the definition of enablement. In theory, yes. In practice, no. Because if you think about, well, why in the early days would people bring in enablement? Well, what was the alternative prior to that? If you think back to some sort of tech company back in 2005, small-ish, you're hired, you're given a laptop and a phone and told, go. And if you were lucky, you'd receive a bit of product training, most of which is in one ear and out the other. And that was the world that we were in. And what you ended up creating was a fairly immovable average in your sales performance over time. Generally, a lot of unpredictability in your pipeline forecasting and gigantic variation in performance. The biggest enemy of enablement always has been, and I think always will be, the 80-20 rule, where 80% of your revenue comes to 20% of your people, or 80% of result comes from 20% of cause. And that's an immutable fact of the universe. I have these arguments with these utopian types who think that you can sort of flatten out everything and create total equality of outcome. And it's just like, well, you're fighting the universe there, my friend. (laughs) You might have some difficulty. But that remains the mission. The practice has quite frankly become L&D in sales in many, many cases. I think I saw a LinkedIn survey recently indicating nearly half of people in enablement have sold about as much as my OnlyFans page in their careers. Now, that's not necessarily a block of success in the enablement profession, but I mean, it certainly means that you've got many more hurdles to overcome if you're going to be successful. Really interesting hearing about that LinkedIn poll, because that's something that I'm hearing a lot from the industry right now is how many of the enablement professionals that are in the industry right now have actually had some sales experience. And how do you kind of blend that skill set between instructional design, learning design principles versus tangible sales experience? Yeah. I say to recruiters very often, you've got two types of people that want to go into enablement. You have those that are trainers who see enablement as a bit of a pay bump. And then you'd have sellers who are motivated by something a bit more and are prepared to take a big pay cut to go into enablement. You could probably guess which one I think is more likely to succeed. Super interesting. I wonder whether there's another layer to that, Ben, in that you think about enablement having many facets, right? Mm. There's everything from supporting and implementing new sales processes or methodologies. There's then also an aspect of content creation and distribution. Is there almost a kind of no one-size-fits-all profile when it comes to enablement roles? That's a really good question. I'm not sure that I put it in those terms. I'd say it really, there's generally a sort of maturity curve that exists in enablement. Tamara Schenk wrote about this in her, her book. She describes the four maturity phases as random, organized, scalable, and adaptive as the sort of journey of enablement. And I buy into that very much. I think that you sort of start by saying, right, I've got, hopefully, a good performing seller who wanted to do something a bit different. You're in a random state. You're going to do a lot of coaching, very responsive, very reactive. Then you need to start getting organized. So start figuring out more strategic initiatives, get a seat around the table, get scalable. Your enablement team should never be growing at the same rate as the sales team. You should always increase the ratio of sellers to enablers. If you're not doing that, then you're just going to be like a cost center. And then adaptive, again, how do we figure out, how do we help the business to achieve its learning goals? So usually that point, you're moving away from just sales and looking at revenue enablement. But within those phases, there are three pillars of good enablement, which is customer centricity. So in other words, how do we start with the customer, customer insights, knowledge of the customer's buying process away from just being tech-centric, which is the problem for most tech companies. The second is being data-informed, not data-driven. Data-driven is you're a spreadsheet slave. Data-informed is that you're able to make practical insights from low-resolution data and then operationalizing what you do. Within that, there are sort of three sub-pillars, which is repeatable, predictable, and scalable. So how do you make sure that what you can do can happen even if you're hit by a bus? 
How do you get predictable, consistent results from it? And how do you make sure that it scales as the business grows? Within those four phases, you've got those three pillars, customer-centric, data-informed, and operationalized. And I think that model holds across every enablement operation. Super interesting framework and massive fan of frameworks personally, and also here at UHubs, Ben. I'd love to explore that in a bit more detail. I think those three pillars you mentioned there, customer-centric, data-informed, and how you then operationalize enablement. Definitely those first two I've heard coming up a lot in the industry right now, how we move away from kind of just focusing on sales managers to actually focusing on enabling a better customer experience and a better buying journey. Yeah. Maybe we start with the customer-centric pillar. What are some things you've seen work well to bring that to life? Well, let me give you one bugbear that I have as a good illustrative example here. I fucking hate qualification calls, but not as much as buyers hate them, mm. right? I've got some problems to solve. I've identified you as a vendor that I want to talk to. I've done my own homework. And by the way, that homework that buyers are doing is getting more and more and more. 50% of millennial buyers want a non-seller buying experience, if at all possible. So they're spending longer and longer and longer before they talk to a seller. They stick their head above the parapet. They want to talk to you. And what do you do? You stick your least experienced people who are fresh off the tit, practically, and they're going to robotically put that customer through some bloody band criteria. It makes me livid. And the number of times I've seen opportunities get basically strangled in the cradle before they ever come to fruition because of that stupid seller-centric process absolutely destroys my head. So that's one example. What do we do? Let's How do we be customer-centric in that scenario instead? Well, why don't we think about looking at giving customers what they actually want? They want to see the product. Great. Whilst they're exploring, kicking tires before they're ready with an opportunity. Brilliant. Give them an insight into your product. Give them the red carpet treatment, particularly if it's a good ICP. Get out of their way, fundamentally. Give them what they want and make sure that when they come to market with maybe an RFP, that they're writing it around your solution. That's the first thing I would say. Systematize that for a moment. I would say most sellers think about going straight into outcome selling before earning trust. Subconsciously, it's a very rational thing to do. Turn it on its head. Start by earning trust before you start attacking outcomes. That's one example of how you can be customer-centric. Maybe another one, if I may. You've presumably worked with outbound BDR teams, I would guess, Matt. Yeah, absolutely. We have one here at Jobs. If they make a 1,000 outbound calls, how many people are picking up? Should we say 10%? Yeah, our call to connect rate averaged about 11% last month. Yeah, 11%. So that's 110 out of 1,000. How many of those 110 conversations yield a customer that's ready to come to the market with an opportunity? Maybe less than 2%. Less than 2%. Okay, so of 11, that's essentially two to three people. How many of them are, how do we say this, not no's, but not now's out of those 110? A decent chunk of them, I'd say, yeah. That's probably the bulk of the funnel, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the traditional seller-centric sales organization is that those, let's say it's 30%, those 30 people, essentially, you stick your middle finger up at them and say, go to hell. You're only interested in talking to those people who meet either some band or med pick criteria. I can only imagine that people who do that don't like money or they don't want to work for the money. What they should be doing is saying, right, where are you in the buying process? Are you sort of concerned about your status quo? Are you exploring options? Are you defining what you want the solution to look like? And did we have an appropriate nurture funnel to say, right, let's almost call it like a pre-pipeline pipeline, something I've implemented many times, to say, guess what? We have a prescribed program of content based on who you are, where you are, and what you are. And we're going to gate that pipeline according to your engagement with the content, with workshops, with sessions, with experts that we want to give you. So you say, okay, those 2% become opportunities. You do a pre-pipeline pipeline, very conservatively, you'll turn 10% of that into an opportunity. So based on 2% conversion 
that's now up to 6% conversion in one fell swoop. Just to kind of bring that to life, a real life example we've seen here at UHubs, we noticed in our win-loss data that we were actually in the last six months started winning a lot of opportunities that went down as closed loss last year. A kind of hypothesis we have internally is that we didn't have much of a kind of pre-pipeline nurture sequence in place. Therefore, we were kind of doing the education during the sales process the first time around, mm. putting them into a nurture cadence once the kind of interest fizzled out. And now they've come back around and they've proactively reached out and said, okay, I'm ready now. I have a little theory that in the next 10 years, the SDR or the BDR will be the most senior role in the sales department and the account executive will be the junior role because all the difficulty, all of the effort and all of the value is at that pre-pipeline pipeline stage. All the skill is there. And as we continue to automate things like procurement processes, legal redline reviews, we're taking the IQ out of bottom of the funnel and we're putting the IQ in the top of the funnel. Wow, that's interesting. It makes me wonder whether we're going to start seeing more career SDR BDRs who kind of stay in that profession longer as opposed to doing 18 months, two years, and then trying to become an AE. Honestly, nothing would make me happier. This is pie in the sky stuff for the moment in 2023, unless companies are really looking to be very smart. But I would love nothing more than to see AE to BDR career transition plans. Super interesting. And I think about top priorities for pretty much every CRO that I'm speaking to at the moment. And pipeline creation is always in the top two or three, but it really is number one for most leaders that I'm speaking to. It needs to be. It absolutely needs to be. I mean, I've seen this as, as an enabler so many times that you go into an organization, you have to sort of diagnose what's going on and they expect you to be able to say things are like, you know, our demo's crap and we need to improve that or our bottom of the funnel process needs some improvement. And all of that may be true. Or, you know, oh, well, we need to hire more account executives. And you're like, well, hang on, you've got the stomach of a shark with the mouth of a sardine. Let's fix that problem before anything else. <laughs> What a great analogy. Yeah, it sounds very familiar. And I'm doing a lot of nodding for those who are listening to the audio version of this episode. Ben, we've kind of conquered customer centricity there. And mm. thank you for sharing those fantastic examples. I think the big theme that came out of that piece of the conversation really for me was trust. And the importance of building trust with your prospects really starts with looking at things through the lens of, of the customer. Absolutely. The second pillar you spoke about there was data informed. I mentioned before we started recording today's episode, I was at a dinner last week with maybe 25 enablers in a room. The word data, if I had a pound for every time that word came up, I'd be able to afford a, an Uber home. A lot of enablement teams are perhaps scared of data or running away from data is some of the themes that I'm hearing right now. Let's dive a bit deeper into that kind of data informed piece. First and foremost, there's a big difference in my mind between being data-driven and data-informed. Data-informed is what it says. So you're making informed, smart decisions based on data in order to achieve some result. Data-driven is that data drives you, is that you're basically a spreadsheet slave. One thing that distinguishes the two is that someone who's data-driven is always looking at lagging indicators. So to say, oh my God, our conversion is falling, sick enablement on them and run some training, which is a disturbingly common reflex. Or to say, enablement's doing all this great work and sales performance has increased a little bit, but how do we attribute that improvement to enablement? How do you know it was enablement? It might have been marketing. You might have done something to your pricing model. You might have done anything. Being really data-informed and enablement really relies, in my view, on working on what a guy called Nick Lawrence describes as influencing indicators. I strongly recommend the audience check out Nick Lawrence on LinkedIn. He's got some amazing content about this, way smarter than me about this. So I have a way of implementing it, the sort of dummies version of what he's doing. And I take a very simplistic view. I describe six competencies that govern sales readiness, aiming, opening, conversation, understanding, vision, and agree commitment. Within each of those, 
I've got a one to five scorecard, one to five star rating based on a checklist of things that is very simple that just governs how well are we executing against these things. And within these competencies includes all things like product knowledge and positioning skills and business acumen all kind of roll up into those six sales readiness competencies. And it allows me to provide the business with a clear measurement about the overall sales readiness of their entire sales organization. And I can dive deep into teams and individuals. I can even start looking at patterns to say, hey, you know, we're actually pretty good at conversation and understanding. We suck at aiming and opening. So then that means, okay, I can now direct enablement efforts towards those problematic areas. And C-levels love it because they say, well, what do these enablement people do? They're very expensive. And you say, right, here's the answer. You've got an, a sales readiness score of 44% right now. Here's the plan to make that north of 50% by the end of this year. So your C-level stakeholders, they look at that and they understand it. Yeah, that's a super powerful point that you make there, Ben, around competencies, because this is kind of one that I'm seeing in the industry at the moment as a bit of a black box. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of kind of overly complex approaches to mapping out and understanding how to use competencies. And I love the way that you kind of simplified it down to a simple framework of six. Do you see those kind of six core competencies applied across just about every organization? Or how should the listeners be thinking about competencies that are related to their unique circumstance? I would say if it's a complex sales cycle, then they apply. There may be some exceptions to that that I can't think of, but I, I can't see how any complex sales cycle, those six competencies with minor tweaking would apply across the board. If you're in the business of selling printers, then probably not. You're operating on a more transactional model. But if that's the case, you're either hiring salespeople to provide a more experiential buying experience, in which case you probably would want something a little bit more modified than this. Or if not, why are you hiring salespeople whatsoever? So no, I would say this applies across the board. It also applies vertically within organizations as well. So you can use the same scores for customer experience as well as account executives, BDRs. I'd even recommend you get your C-suite to have their own sales readiness score. So it's a universal metric. Super interesting. I love that. And just to be clear for our listeners here, when we refer to competencies and overall sales readiness scores, we are referring to quantifying the levels at which each seller in the organization is competent in those different areas. Precisely. In terms of how we then use this to be data informed, we're then using that quantification or that understanding of where each seller is at to inform how we then better enable them, but also therefore tracking how sellers are improving over time. Yep. And I'm assuming there's then an opportunity to correlate that to improvements in performance. This for me, Ben, is crucial. This data-informed piece for me just feels like the kind of missing jigsaw piece in so many enablement programs that I've been a part of. I think this is super valuable listening. And going back to an earlier point you made around leadership and executive boards viewing enablement as a cost center, mm. it feels like this data piece is the crucial part that can help you overcome that. Well, yes, you need to be able to make smart decisions based upon the data. You then need to say, okay, well, we've got this data that indicates to us that we might want to look at certain areas. How are we going to address them? And this is why this old model of enablement as L&D and sales needs to die. Because the traditional response is, okay, great. Well, I'm going to take my sales team off the phones for half a day and run them through some death by PowerPoint. And we call that enablement. Yeah. Bloody hell. <laughs> the forgetting curve will screw you up there. Whereas what we should be doing is saying, okay, instead of being overly academic about it, let's perhaps, I mean, Rod Jefferson talks about this a lot. I really like what he has to say. 
will produce some little bits of micro-learning nuggets, embed it in their flow of work. And we're going to also enable leaders to make sure that leaders are coaching on these topics. We're going to use some revenue intelligence platform to make sure that we're highlighting what's going on and then measuring the impact of change after the intervention. And then we can say, right, well, now we know that any learning that's happened has stuck and is now also being applied. So we need to move away from this model of enablement has created success by churning out enablement, by churning out learning. Who cares? I've said to people I've worked with in the past, you shouldn't care if I enable people by dressing up like a giant chicken and clucking at the sellers when they're talking to customers. If it delivers the results that are measurable, you shouldn't care about means. You need to care about the output. That for me is spot on. That hits the nail on the head. And without this data, without those leading indicators, it becomes very hard to prove your worth within the organization, right? You're an expensive trainer at that point without it. That's not good for your career longevity. I love it. We talked there in the second pillar about the difference between being data informed rather than data driven, not just being a dashboard slave, but actually using the data to separate leading indicators from lagging indicators to inform your programs and the activities and programs you you run, but then also to use data to prove impact and value upwards to leadership. Exactly. The third pillar you mentioned there, Ben, is then like, how do we then start to operationalize some of this stuff? And I guess once you've got those first two pillars in place, operationalizing becomes much more impactful, becomes much more relevant and focused and timely. Let's dive a bit deeper, if we may, into that operationalizing piece. Well, there's three parts to operationalizing, which is repeatable, predictable, and scalable. If I pick on repeatable before anything else, this is where organizational alignment is so, so important. And it's why I think that enablement really needs to sit within RevOps, if not reporting directly to CRO, because you need to be talking to the same person who's determining how sales leaders are spending their time. That is the most crucial thing. I believe that the most impactful things that sales leaders can do are A, coach their people, B, maintain a pipeline of top talent, and C, irrelevant, (laughs) essentially. So how do you do that? Well, first and foremost, if sales leaders are running a team of more than six or seven people, then probably they've got too many people reporting to them. As a good enabler, you need to be highlighting that immediately to whoever you need to talk to and say, guys, we have a problem here, because it means that these people are not really able to do anything except bash people over the heads with spreadsheets. And then once you're at that point where people can coach, make sure that they've got the means to do so. Educate them on your competencies, turn them into prefab development tips, make sure everyone's got a coaching goal. And I don't even go so far as to encourage leaders to make coaching a core KPI for leadership. Every person in the sales org needs to get X number of coaching sessions per quarter, let's say. Once you've established that, you then start to say, okay, well, now I've created the basics for a culture of enablement. And then when you start to say, okay, well, I've now created the soil. We now need to solve some particular problem. All I now need to do is plant the seed. So I go to sales leaders and say, hey, we have a problem across the board with, let's say, something relating to opening. Maybe we're not setting good agendas in our meetings and consequently, they're just being overrun by technical people and we're losing the meeting. So here's our program of enablement. Can we make sure we're talking to the teams about it? Can we make sure the coaching is happening? Use me when you need to call in the cavalry. So that's one example of repeatability. Another is making sure that you've invested in a good enough tech stack. And that doesn't need to be some expensive tool. It could even be just putting little micro-learning nuggets into a wiki and linking that within the CRM or making sure that there's a library of stuff that leaders can use to prescribe to their people as they're coaching. Sellers won't watch a video if it's more than about eight minutes long. 
So if you're buying in content, make sure it's less than eight minutes. If you're making content, make sure it's less than eight minutes. So micro learning is the future. In conjunction with coaching. Workshops are great for practical reinforcement in the form of coaching as well. But I would say you don't really want to go beyond those three pillars. If you're sticking big, long, heavy Udemy style courses into your learning management system and you're calling it enablement, I would challenge you then to measure how much of that learning is actually being applied one to three months hence. I could almost guarantee very little, in which case you've wasted your money. On this topic of operationalizing your enablement, we spoke earlier about that Pareto law of 80% of your outcomes coming from 20% of your inputs. I get this question a lot from enablers around where they should focus their efforts, because we talked there about actually enablement potentially being a blocker, particularly for high performers. You know, we don't want to get in the way or take them off the phones or off demos. How do you think about getting that balance right as you're operationalizing this stuff? You want to make it repeatable, predictable and scalable. Should you be focusing perhaps more of your efforts on outside of the 20% that are smashing it and actually try to raise the bar on the other 80% or how do you see that? It's a good question. And again, a lot of that comes back to your relationship with sales leaders. The inexperienced sales leader is going to say, oh my God, I've got 20% of my team that are massively underperforming. Go, enablement. And generally speaking, people who are bottom performers are bottom performers for a reason. And you have to be able to say to the leader, look, I can help this person, but the juice ain't worth the squeeze, if that is the case. It's not enablement's role to wield an axe, but it's sometimes we, we do have to say, look, we're not going to necessarily pay much attention to the bottom 20. We're actually going to put all of that energy and put it into the middle 60. Because if we can get the middle 60 performing at the same level as the top 20. So that's the way you start, again, increasing the average, but we're also reducing the deviation in performance. And what the business decides to do about the bottom group of people the human in me wants to put the energy in to try and help them, but I'm, I'm not going to waste a lot of energy on them unless it's an easy fix. Because again, if enablement's being hired correctly, it's a very, very small department. So you've got to be really careful about where you put your energy. That's a crucial point that you make as well. And it makes me think that many enablement teams who are already under incredibly stretched across a lot of sellers, if they get into that kind of operational content creation, L&D type stuff, they're unable to be strategic and actually focus on the three pillars that we've spoken about in today's conversation, right? Yeah. Look, the content production stuff should be a one-time job. It should be stuff that supplies the leaders with the ammunition to improve those six competencies once they've diagnosed that there's a problem with one of those six competencies. And likewise, it's stuff that you can then use and repurpose during onboarding. And then in onboarding workshops, you test whether people are able to apply it. That's a good use of energy. It's a good investment of energy, but it's an upfront cost. Once you've made that upfront cost, you shouldn't have to be spending huge amounts of time playing around with content. You know, likewise, things like, you know, when new product launches come up, you should be collaborating with product marketing on positioning, on the storytelling element. But that shouldn't have to be a huge lift, particularly if marketing are collaborating well with you. Wow, Ben, what a conversation. I could really continue this for the rest of the morning and through to the afternoon, but I'm sure your schedule looks much like mine does. Um, we unfortunately have to bring it to an end at some point. I think if I was to kind of summarize and distill the kind of one key takeaway from today's conversation here in terms of enablement in a recession and the future of enablement, it would really be your kind of ruthless focus on outcomes. And we covered so much within how to effectively do that, everything from competencies, using leading indicators, being data informed, being customer centric, and then being very strategic about how you operationalize it. I'll kind of leave the floor to you to kind of share any kind of final thoughts around where enablement goes from here and what does enablement look like moving forwards? 
Look, I think in this session, we've had quite a grizzled, realistic, maybe a little bit too sort of angry men shouting at clouds conversation. And that's needed because there's so much fluff around the enablement profession. And I'm sorry, but it doesn't survive contact with reality. What I will say is this, and I hope to consider myself among this group. It's an ambition of mine. The best enablers are those that are really, really motivated to do something long term. What pushed me in the profession was I was getting a bit bored of the quarter ever quarter grind. And that tends to be the case for a lot of enablers. I was just like, you know what? Look, I want to do something that's going to stick. And that's a theme. And if, if you're a salesperson and you have that feeling and you're prepared to take the pay cut, but you're able to then look at a BDR that you coached three years ago that's now just bought their own house in cash and is absolutely crushing it in their life. And they come back to you and they say, thank you. And that's the sort of thing that motivates you. This is still an awesome profession for you to join. Super inspiring, Ben. Really enjoyed hanging out today on the show and the conversations are really enjoyable as always. For the listeners who would like to follow your content, connect with you after listening to this, I'm sure LinkedIn is a great place to do that. But are there any other channels that you'd like to direct folks to? Yeah, LinkedIn is probably the best if you want to reach out. I have a website, which is chasmjumper.com, C-H-A-S-M, jumper, one word, .com, where I focus a lot on executive storytelling and strategic positioning as well. Probably the best ways to reach out to me. Ben, absolute pleasure as always. And thanks for coming on the show. You too, my friend. Take care. By uncovering blind spots on performance, motivation and skills, UHubs helps busy sales leaders at top SaaS companies to optimize their sales enablements so that they can develop reps and grow revenue. The UHubs Pulse platform visualizes each team's development needs, personalized upskilling, and provides data-driven coaching recommendations. These save sales managers 40 plus hours per quarter and help reps to ramp up 30% faster. Supercharge your sales team by booking a demo today.